0: Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Night site. We are the retro show that talks about all the great baby boomer memories. If you were born between the years of 1945 and 1965, you're really going to love what you're about to hear with us. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. And you think these are turbulent times, folks. <laughs> we're going to fast reverse back 50 years to a real turbulent time, and we didn't have the internet, and we didn't have smartphones, and we didn't even have dumb phones. We had television, which was about as dumb as it gets. But you know what? Fifty years ago, the turbulence of the times and society was reflected on our TV screens during prime time. We're going to talk about a couple of those shows, a few of the the times and the shows, and, and the revolution in television uh, around fifty years ago. Uh, Smitty, you know, we've talked about some of these shows, and you're gonna you're gonna open this up. But uh, some that come to mind fifty years ago, they were. I don't want to use the term earth-shattering, but they were earth-shaking. they uh, It was a time of change. There was a lot going on in the country, in the world for that matter. We were dead smack in the middle of the Vietnam War. I remember the war. you You were kind of young. George was a little younger than me. But there were things going on politically. Um Bobby Kennedy was assassinated Martin Luther King there was a lot going on in this country and of course the <clears throat> eye in the living room was known as the television which is where most of us got most of our information radio and TV smitty
1: That's right we did yeah the turbulence that was happening in the in the world 50 years ago assassinations the war in Vietnam and the civil rights movement which got a big start in the early 60s and was by this time was uh, in full force. And, of course, television, as you said, Mike, was that glass eye, that glass cyclops in the corner of the living room where we got all of our information. So a lot of the things that we saw on television were reflective of what was happening. But there was a lot of what I think we could term uh, sort of fantasy television programs at that time period. There was a lot of situation comedies, such as Green Acres, sure. Beverly Hillbillies, Gomer Pyle, uh, Petticoat Junction, things like that. And what happened was that the uh, the suits, as we've referred to them on numerous occasions on our program, the suits at the networks, especially CBS, decided that these programs were not really realistic. They were pulling in an older audience. And for some reason, they wanted to get a younger audience watching their networks because they thought, never quite figured it out why, that there was more money to be had there by catering to a younger audience. So they began a systematic cancellation of a lot of these programs. It was called the Rural Purge. And it's, in television history, it's, it's well known. This happened in the late 60s, 67, 68. It began well, uh, ran well into the early 70s. And so you cancel these programs, and what needs to replace the programs? Other programs. So what are we going to do to make these more attractive? Well, we'll make them a little bit more edgy. We'll make them a little bit more, appealing to younger people that perhaps have more of a rebellious streak in them so two of the particular programs that we'll start talking about uh was the smothers brothers show that premiered during that time period and also the carol burnett show now let me let me set the stage for this now carol burnett was not a an edgy program by any means but it was really a neat variety program. It was sort of reminiscent of the early days of television to have a television program that had variety, comedy. But this program was spearheaded by a woman, a female, which was basically unheard of at that time.
2: It definitely yes.
1: was. And the Smothers brothers, uh their edgy edginess. I'm going to turn it over to George who's going to elaborate a little bit more on the Smothers Brothers, but we're going to talk more about all these shows. And we'll talk about Carol Burnett as well and the general change in the television climate during this particular period of time, because as I said, it was very reminiscent of what was going on in the real world. George, uh, go ahead and talk to us. I know you're going to talk to us a little bit about the Smothers Brothers, but any other general thoughts you might have on this? Well,
2: I have a a slightly different uh, perspective, and that is that the decade of the 1960s was known as the soaring 60s. And uh, yours truly, having grown up in what I call an aerospace household, we saw it a bit differently. We saw it as a decade of enormous uh, pioneering accomplishment in the context of science and engineering and exploration. Remember, this was the height of the space race, that President Kennedy had set the goal that we were going to land a man on the moon before the close of the decade, which we were able to do. And everything was really focused on the fact of America getting to the moon first, which we did. And uh, there were a lot of benefits that arose out of that space program that had a number of uh, positive benefits, and it also influenced our pop culture uh, enormously, because we had our eyes focused on the stars, so to speak. But the Smothers Brothers uh, were stars of a different type. Uh, the brothers had actually emerged in the mid-1960s with a short-lived comedy show in which uh, Brother Tom actually played a ghost. Uh, His character reportedly was lost at sea, and then you'd see him periodically uh, interact uh, with uh, his brother Dick, and a number of situational comedies. And while the show itself didn't last very long, the interplay... Between the brothers was very well received. And so their variety show, which debuted in 1967 and ran until it was canceled in 1969 after achieving number one status in its time slot, was a fusion of conversational interplay between the brothers, comedy skits as well as music. Music that, by the way, they themselves performed. Mm. They are, they were a remarkable duo. They had great voices. I would encourage the audience here to go on YouTube and uh, type in, for example, Smothers Brothers singing Call the Wind Mariah, which begins with a bit of a comedic interchange, but then it gets to the, uh, the song itself, and they do a wonderful job.
1: The thing about the Smothers Brothers also, apart from the musical element, was that they did, and you and Mike and I were talking about this during the pre-production, some of their guests were a little bit edgy. Uh, Some of the politics involved. Pat Paulson, remember, among others. Yes. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. I know that we had talked about that, that uh, some of the guest stars were also people that you wouldn't exactly have seen on television perhaps five, six, seven years earlier.
2: Very much so. I I want to mention one that I think uh, that everyone can embrace because it was a pioneering presentation of its own. And it's one that I remember because I remember seeing it actually, you know, when it occurred, which was the musical presentation of Mason Williams, his classical Gas, which was done with Mr. Williams performing with an entire orchestra, and this instrumental became an iconic hit in the late 1960s, and you hear it played a lot nowadays as well, and uh, Mr. Williams is indelibly connected with the Smothers Brothers, but as you noted, there were other musical guest stars that they introduced that, again similar to another program that we talked about, allowed adults and young people to watch at the same time. Here's a, a partial list. The Doors. Joan Baez. Cass Elliot when she went on her own after leaving the Mamas and Papas. Spanky and Our Gang. The Hollies and Glenn Campbell, and finally there was The Who. And as you can see here with each of these stars that I've noted here, they all had their distinct styles, some a bit edgier than others. Uh, the Doors, Joan Baez as, as one example, but I think it was The Who that, that really, I think, brought... Uh, the scrutiny of the network brass, and that was because The Who, for those of the, you remember this classical rock band, were noted for destroying their instruments at the end of a performance, and that's what they ended up doing on live TV. And I do remember watching that with my parents, and my parents were not prudish uh, in their behavior, but I did sense that that rather surprised them, and perhaps uh, disappointed as well.
1: I think that would have been rather shocking to to uh, older viewers, you know, or people that were used to a more benign uh, performance on TV to see them destroying their instruments after they finished playing.
0: Well, sure, and then if you look at the 60s and you, it was the uh, the what do you call it, Smitty, the Rural, the Rural Purge, the Rural, era, purge, the, rural purge, the transformation Uh, going from the dark ages of television to the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. to the modern ages. Well, the Middle Ages would would have been the 60s. And you think about it, and you had this interesting recipe, this stew, of whimsy, thought-provoking, slapstick, and edgy, all combined into a medium known as the variety show. Carol Burnett was a lot more tame, of course, than Smothers Brothers, and Glenn Campbell was a lot more tame than the two of them put together. However, you did have a variety show where you had the nuance of having something for everyone, unlike the earlier days of television where you had it primarily geared toward an, an older audience. Right. Uh, the World War II veterans, that era, the greatest generation, come the 60s. The suits, the bean counters, the the people who wanted to get inside our heads and find out what it was we wanted to watch came up with interesting concepts that we have an hour's time, we've got to have a little something for everybody. So, of course, they would bring in a rock group. They mm-hmm. would bring in the doors. They would bring in the who. They would bring in, and then uh, the Smothers Brothers, they were the fulcrum. They were the middle of the balance wheel where they were in themselves, the two of them, were a little bit of something for everyone, and they would go over the edge. They would go, they would cross back and forth over the line, to the point where they would offend some. And as far as the new revolution and the people who saw change in society or wanted change, the the new political atmosphere, uh, they were the darlings. Of that viewing audience, so they walked a very thin line, which probably was the cause for their early demise a few seasons later. Uh, a show like that cannot stand because things are in a whirlwind and there's too much turbulence in society to be able to maintain that on a constant basis. But you look at the Smothers Brothers, the whole idea of the Smothers Brothers, they weren't so novel and so new. You go down the list and, and you had in in the earlier times you had Abbott and Costello, mm-hmm. Well, proved to me that the Smothers Brothers wasn't a fast-forward modern version of Abbott and Costello. You had the straight guy, and you had the clown. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. had, you had mm-hmm. the goof, and you had the voice of reason. Uh, you could take that as far as Laurel and Hardy. You could take that even as far as Burns and Allen. Yes, mm-hmm. you could. Mm-hmm. Where you had, a, you had a fall guy, you had a straight guy, you had gags, mm-hmm. you had skits. Mm-hmm. And so the model was not all that unique. That model was not all contemporary. It was a nuance of... It was a new version of an old entertainment trick, which even stressed back all the way to vaudeville, to where you did have the the stand-up, you know, Abbott. Bud Abbott was there in the suit and the fedora. Lou Costello, the fat man, with the tight jacket and the derby hat. Mm -hmm. Uh, you You can watch Old Smothers Brothers... Uh, all the reruns on YouTube are the old seasons, and you see that characteristic there. Now go to Carol Burnett. Now you had the basically, you had an ensemble. You had a touring ensemble of characters. You had Car- Harvey Corman, you had Vicki Lawrence, you had Carol Burnett, of course, and you had Tim Conway. And uh, they all portrayed different levels of an old model of comedy and entertainment, but brought forward into a contemporary nuance where some of the things of the day, or they would spoof. Carol Burnett, probably one of the most famous Carol Burnett episodes, was Carol Burnett when she did The Gun with the Wind. Absolutely, yeah. That's Uh, classic. That's time immemorial. Mm -hmm. You can still see that. Uh, You can still see that on the Carol Burnett where they're trying to sell the DVDs of the Carol Burnett show. And I will guarantee you 90% of the time when Carol Burnett's on a talk show, the conversation will revert or will go to the time that she wore the drapes and came down the stairs. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Vicki Lawrence, same thing when she did Mama's House. Mama's, yeah. Yeah.
2: I was just going to uh, say before shifting to Carol Burnett about the Smothers Brothers. It's an interesting dichotomy, and I think Mike provided, I think, the needed historic context to make sense of it all. And yet the Smothers Brothers accomplished something that no other program could do during that period. Recall that from 1959 to 1973, the number one ranked program in that time slot on Sunday evenings was Bonanza. Here come the Smothers Brothers with their shtick, with their fusion of uh, new uh, rock and roll stars, their political satire, the conversation interspersed with their, uh, their musical singing. And what happened was the Smothers Brothers achieved the number one ranking. And as a matter of fact, you could say... To uh, use a play on words, they gunned down Bonanza in Mm -hmm. the ratings. Bonanza Mm -hmm. did not know what hit them. They weren't even able to get their six-shooter out of their holster, (laughs) and the Smothers Brothers were wiping them out. Now, what's interesting is at the very peak of of their ratings, the Smothers Brothers were canceled because they... Crossed the line politically. They, they started to overemphasize the political satire to their own demise. What I think is sad about that is I think they had a great formula. And what is equally sad about it is that they didn't have to do that. If you really think about what was going on uh, beginning in the late 60s and early 70s, it was possible to have a top-ranked TV show, and you could do your political satire or your edgy material off the TV screen. Mm -hmm. Think, for example, Bill Cosby. Think Johnny Carson. That They had acts in Las Vegas, I know, I went to them, (laughs) that were distinctly different and far more edgier than their television uh, format, Mm -hmm. and they were able to maintain both. I think the Smothers Brothers... could have done something similar but for whatever reason chose not to do so so in a sense and i'm not agreeing or disagreeing with the decision to take them off but the but the rules of engagement are what they are, or they were what they were. And the Smothers Brothers, in a sense, ushered themselves out. And even years later, they noted that when their show was canceled, it actually turned out to be a blessing because they went out on top. Mm-hmm. And so there's forever this image that's just frozen in time of the Smothers Brothers being number one in the ratings and uh, outgunning the competition with a unique fusion and style of programming that uh, had not been seen on network television
1: that's very true George and the uh, situation uh, that Mike described earlier the, the comedy formula has always been there as Mike said it goes back to the vaudeville days the content is what changed of course over the years the days of Burns and Allen, and in earlier times it might have been mindless type comedy, which was very funny, but really didn't have any kind of a, of a commentary. This Mother's Brothers came in and it was more of a social commentary, more of a political commentary.
2: Exactly, and I think what made Carol Burnett such a success, why her program lasted 11 years, from 67 to 78, was because she was far more relatable. And I don't want to use the word safer, but because she was a pioneer. Because Mm -hmm. as uh, you noted earlier, she uh, was head of a variety show as a woman, something that was unheard of at the time. Mm -hmm. But her impromptu Q&A with... Uh, The audience at the start of every show when she would do her Tarzan yell and other such things, her signature sign off, which was to tug uh, on her ear as sort of a a private uh, message to her grandmother that everything was okay, She was in a good place. You know, all of these things uh, endeared her to the audience, as well as, of course, the superior comedic scripts. I think I would add to what Mike noted, in addition to the Gone with the Wind uh, uh, parody, think about how she parodied uh, Queen Elizabeth and the royal family. No one has ever matched uh, what she was able to do uh, at that time. And I think one other thing I would mention about Carol Burnett, that only one other star I can remember from that era that did the same thing. She went out on top at her own initiative. She was not shown the door mm-hmm. or canceled like the Smothers Brothers were. She actually kind of followed what Mary Tyler Moore had done the immediate previous year mm-hmm. in 1977, that on her own initiative saying, you know what, we've gone as far as we can, we're number one, let's go out on top and leave, uh, and leave a good feeling with the audience. And uh, Carol Burnett did that. And uh, she maintained that connection with her audience because... Of uh, the fact that she was able to deal with real life issues, whether it was with alcoholism, whether it was drug addiction, you know, for you know a, a teenage daughter. You know, all of these things Carol Burnett experienced in her own life, and she shared it with her audience, thereby cementing that connection that, he, that she had established in the 11 years that she was on network TV. And it remains to this day the same way.
1: I think it's interesting that. Carol Burnett and the Smothers Brothers premiered at approximately the same time during this uh, turbulent period when television was changing so much. But, you know, we had a, a program that we did earlier on Lawrence Welk, and we were talking about that Lawrence Welk was also... Uh, Uh, a victim of that rural purge as it were and he parlayed that into syndication which worked out very well for him and there was also the same thing happened during this period of time a number of shows went into syndication that continued to have successful runs the networks for whatever reason as we've said that they wanted to get a a younger audience in uh canceled all these programs another victim of that purge mike was the ed sullivan show ed sullivan was canceled in 1971 and um I think the problem with Sullivan at that time period was that he was trying to appeal to too broad of an audience. You had perhaps uh, an opera singer followed by a rock band, followed by a plate twirler, followed by... uh uh, another rock and roller, and it just didn't really work that well. He was trying to appeal to too broad of an audience. That's really, I think, Ed Sullivan is kind of the case example of the division between the younger generation, you know, trying to appeal to the younger generation and the older generation. But
2: what do you remember Sullivan for? He introduced the Beatles. Introduced, yes, he introduced of Elvis. Mm-hmm. and And I think what had happened by that point is that other competition had come in. He was no longer the vehicle by which to introduce audiences to uh, you know new and, and upcomers. In some cases he did, but, it, but it, he didn't have the monopoly that he did earlier. Not
1: at that time period. That's right, George.
0: Well, the maturity level and the age level of the viewers was changing. There was a landscape of change, too, because you went from Ed Sullivan, and CBS and ABC, even NBC, realized in the late 60s and the early 70s that one size – Did not fit all. Mm -hmm. Ed Sullivan, one size fit all. There was something for everyone on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. In the next hour, there's going to be something you like and something that you're going to step out and make popcorn with. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Doors, Mm -hmm. the Beatles. Well, everybody sat around watched the Beatles because, in in the case of suburban America, and in my family's case, my parents were figuring, trying to figure out what all the fuss was about with the Beatles. And they were nonplussed. They were not impressed, as with most parents of children my age. But we thought, a, oh, wow, I know all the people. And, and my parents were completely blown away that my brothers and I could sit there and, and knew the first names of the Beatles. That was amazing. Where how many people could sit there and tell you the names of every band member of the Artie Shaw band? Mm-hmm. Nobody. they mm-hmm. tell you who Artie Shaw was. But y- you look at the lineup in 1968, the, the show lineup, it was a broad stroke of just about... Everything possible under the sun. You had your, you had your feature, your uh, variety shows. You had Roan and Martin's Laugh In, mm-hmm. was basically another vaudeville offshoot of slapstick comedy and political commentary. You would then run into number two in 1968, Gomer Pyle, USMC. That was parody of, of the service, the Marine mm-hmm. Corps. It was a time of the Vietnam War. It was a very tragic, a very dismal time in the American political. St- uh, landscape because half of america was for the war and the other half was against the war of course that had turned two three years later where everybody became against the war but then as george mentioned bonanza that was uh, whimsical i call that whimsical western western whimsy is what i call that genre <laughs> uh three grown men all brothers uh, all about the same age the father's about 10 years older than the brothers, and the mother's died. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you didn't really deep drill into what the logic was on these shows because they were cheap entertainment. Uh, you had a show with Sebastian Cabot called The Family Affair. That was very serious business. There was some levity in comedy in Family Affair, but that was America, the family of a single parent, and children that were not just dumb kids getting into mischief. Uh, they were very intellectual for being children. And then you had the old standby, which was not, I don't call Western whimsy, but Western historical fiction, a show called Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, of course. Yes. Which was an evergreen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gunsmoke wouldn't go away. Gunsmoke couldn't go away for years and years and years. And the old uh, the old cliche, uh, they, they rode the shark out. Gun smoke went out, not with a bang, but with a bust. Uh, people just got tired of, of Marshall Dillon, and when Marshall Dillon faded away, you know the, it was exciting at a time, but America had lost interest. We didn't want to see a, a showdown on Main Street outside the bar anymore or Marshall Dillon crash in a bar stool over somebody's head. Uh, people were more astute. They were more sophisticated, the, the viewing audience, but they still enjoyed watching Here's Lucy. It was a time of, of of racial turbulence and racial change. There was a show called Julia, Julia with Diane Carroll, yeah. who I still yeah. have a major crush on. <laughs> I lost her to Vic DeMona, and I'll never forget that. <laughs> I mentioned that on and previous And Paul shows.
2: Winfield uh, had a recurring role on yeah. that as well. I remember uh, that so, there, so well.
0: There were think shows, uh, whimsical or sci-fi, but in, in more of a dramatic genre, Mission Impossible. Yeah. But you always went back to the variety shows. The variety shows will always stand. Unfortunately, the reality nowadays is the variety and the hosted shows are so politically slanted. Yeah. And this is not a political show, nor will it ever be a political show, but you go to any talk, hosted talk, variety show nowadays, and it's leaning politically one way or the other. And instead of feeling good at the end of that 60 minutes, you feel like, wow, what, what did I just sit through?
1: You feel like you've been put through an old uh, washing machine. Yeah, yeah. an old wringer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, or you've been yeah pre- you feel you, wrung out. <laughs> you <do. Yeah. laughs> you,
0: you've been preached to or you feel the fact that, well, if I don't dogpile on this person that they're all actually going after I'm not cool. Yeah, Jackie uh, Gleason was big in the '68s. Yeah. Back to Fat Man slapstick is what I call yeah. that genre. <laughs> I got a name for them all. You had Jackie Gleason, but on the other end of the spectrum, you had the the cop show, Dragnet. Mm-hmm. You had the historical drama, Daniel Boone. Mm-hmm. '68. I don't think we'll ever see us. We'll ever see the spectrum. Television was incredible. And yeah, the wide variety, the variety. And, and just the choose from it was. It was a Sears. Christmas holiday catalog of anything that mm-hmm. you were into sci fi, drama, mm-hmm. police procedurals, mm-hmm. comedy, slapstick, vaudeville, tongue in cheek talk, controversy, anything and everything, whimsical fantasy. I dream of Genie. It
1: mm-hmm. was the old mm-hmm. Genie in a bottle, folks. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 yep. What an interesting time period that was, and we're glad that we were able to uh, share that with you. A lot of uh, different convergent entertainment genres that were coming together in television at that time. So thanks, Mike and George. And we're going to pause right now for a retro commercial and then we'll be back with more of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. So please don't go away.
0: This is the year of the lark. The lark is the car of the year. Look what's new for you from the lark. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. It's a new convertible, seats five adults in style. It's so pert and perky, runs on pennies per mile. The Lark by Studebaker, yours in six stunning styles for 60, including the new convertible and... Look, what else is new for you? It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. It's a new Lark wagon with four convenient doors. And it's style for fun and frolic, but it's built for chores. Look at the Lark yourself. Learn how it's been proven by 750 million miles of owner use. Visit your Studebaker dealer and see how nothing has been spared to build quality into the Lark. Discover why it's the value car of the year. The Lark is the car of the year.
1: Yes, visit your Studebaker dealer tomorrow and see the 1960 Lark. Don't we wish, Mike? (laughs) My uncle had a Lark. Did he really? Yeah. (laughs) They look
0: like little lunch boxes. They're amazing. The Studebaker Lark. Yeah, the Studebaker. There's nothing like a Lark. No, that was the cigarette. Yeah. But Studebaker yeah. Lark, it was, yeah. actually, it was very popular in suburbia, the yeah. Studebaker. the Studebaker Lark. Yeah.
1: Well, we we'll to do a show on old car makes one of these times. <laughs> that would be kind of neat to do this. There were so many of them in the past. We'll
2: call it Gilbert's Garage Hour.
1: There we go. That sounds good <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty Smith, along with Mike Bragg. George Halalakos as we continue with the second half of our program today. You know, uh, I think we all have memories uh, of working with uh, loved ones uh, on projects and things back in the day. We either worked with, I guess in the case of us boys, we all worked with either dad or grandpa or, or uh, an uncle, maybe a... Uh, an adult neighbor that was building something and we all went over there and helped out and we we're going to talk a little bit about that spend the next few minutes talking about that about how we enjoyed that i know that uh, uh when i was little i really didn't help out my dad a whole lot he kind of used to like to do things on his own but i would watch him i know later on we did things together like i would help him build things or we used to do such benign things as mixed concrete whenever he was building something. But it was always uh, fun to, to join in with an adult and do something. I remember I have some memories of helping a next-door neighbor with something. But you guys, uh, Mike, uh, I know your your dad was was like my dad, kind of a handyman type, did things around the house and enjoyed building and doing stuff. And uh, Do you have any particular memories of anything that uh, you worked on with dad that uh, maybe building something or putting something together or anything like
0: that? Yes, maybe I do in the sixties that the where I grew up in Highland Park, most of the homes were built in the late teens 19, our home was built in nineteen eighteen mm-hmm. and most of the homes were built in the twenties or the early teens turn of the century and they were lath and plaster and My dad learned how this was a time in the sixties where everybody wanted to evolve into to paneling. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Paneling in their home, walnut paneling, maple paneling. So on any given Saturday, and my dad was probably like your dad and a lot of the dads in in blue-collar, middle-class, middle-income America where most of the dads worked part of the days on Saturdays usually, or, or very few slept. My dad worked, and he would come home, and I remember he would have the pickup truck and he had gone by the liquor, by the uh, and the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> he went to the L stores. He went to the liquor store, but first he went to the lumber store, the lumber yard. And it, he would come home, and he would have the whole bed of the truck filled with with uh, paneling, rich paneling, mm. and nails, finishing nails, and all the stuff that would go with it. Uh, Drywall was known as sheetrock, Yes. Mm. and the old plaster ceilings, he would cover those up with sheetrock and tape those down, and the paneling would go up on the walls, and a regular lath and plaster painted wall would become a paneled wall, Mm -hmm. wood paneling. And Dad was always doing something around the house, and it seemed like my dad could fix anything. And if he couldn't fix it, he knew where to go. And many times it was a, some guy down at maybe a gas station down the street on the corner mm-hmm. bought a welding torch and could fix something. Mm-hmm. And my dad, I, I, amazing afternoons were when my dad would tune up the car. Because mm-hmm. You would get a set of points, and you would get a box of spark plugs, and five, six, whatever, the engine's quarts of oil, and dad would spend Saturday afternoon servicing the car. Mm-hmm. You did not have Minute Jiffy or Grease Monkeys or Jiffy Lube. They were in, a, in existence. If you did want to pay to have your oil changed, you would go to the filling station, mm-hmm. the gas station, and every gas station had a garage, two or three bays, and, and you would go in. But I don't know of any of the dads in my neighborhood that would take their car and to get an oil change and a tune-up. The dads would do that and just... Remembering my dad with the dwell tachometer, the the gauge, and the feelers that would set the points yeah. on the distributor. You, they, they had to be an exact tolerance and gapping the spark plugs mm-hmm. and getting greasy. And and my part, my assistance would probably be limited to Mike hand me that three quarter inch wrench, mm-hmm. or give me the drain plug back, or take this oil and. But it was so exciting to be part of working on the family car yeah or dad had a table saw with the paneling and he would he would saw these pieces of of uh, paneling to exact tolerances to exact dimensions and they would fit and seldom would he make a mistake and i thought you know i wish i had that skill he cuts this one time and pops it right up and it fits and i've always aspired to do that but Helping around the house, it could be putting patch on a roof mm-hmm. or changing out a faucet, a spigot outside, or, or upgrading again. The upgrades, it was a time, 50s and 60s were a time of upgrading the homes. Mm-hmm. And the old faucets would come out of the bathrooms and these new ones, which are detestable. Yeah. <laughs> they were porcelain, the old ones were porcelain handles and they would actually say hot and cold. And there was one in the middle that would say waste. Huh. That was water. You'd push that, and all the water would go down the drain. Wow. And pulling the pedestals, the porcelain pedestals out, and replacing with, with a vanity. I wonder where all that stuff is now. Somebody would make a fortune. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But just a time where middle-class America, they would buy a home, and then they would make it their way. They would remodel it or make improvements to it and be part of that, be a little little kid growing up and, and watching that or They poured a patio slab one time, and all the neighbors got together. That's back to the liquor store story.
2: Got to have a party.
0: You know, a couple of cases of Ham's beer, cool, refreshing Ham's beer. And uh, the neighbors would come over with their wheelbarrows and their shovels, and about 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning, the concrete mixer truck would pull up, and all the guys, all the fellows would line up with their wheelbarrows and their They call them a Georgia buggy and fill them up with with fresh, wet concrete and the smell and pour in the forms and then smooth it out. And those memories that you just don't see anymore. It seems like in today's society, you hire somebody to do everything, Mm -hmm. from replace a screen door to replace a piece of window and a frame to come out in plumbing. Uh, My dad had a big coiled snake, a plumbing snake in the garage, and it was rusty and it was spooky looking had a wood handle and occasionally the toilet or the sink would back up and dad would go out and get this metal snake and fight with it and struggle and down it would go and clear the drain now it's you know 150 dollars 95 bucks to have a truck come out but so many things that were done by the owner of the house or, or that we had done and very seldom did you hire anybody to do anything unless it was major Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that that was sort of the the, the golden era of of do-it-yourself as far as home home stuff was. And uh, I think I also remember my dad doing oil changes on our old pickup truck and me handing him wrenches and rags and hand me that can of oil or whatever, so you know, I was trying to help out. George, how about you?
2: Well, my memory about uh, working with a parent actually is with my mom. Mm-hmm. We had a neighborhood troop for Cub Scouts. That is, we had children that we all lived in the same neighborhood. We all went to school together. And my mom was the den mother, actually a den mother, but she was the chief den mother. And mom did not drive Okay so she had to figure out projects and things that we could do uh right there at home and of course all the kids could come to our home and we would have uh, you know our regular troop meetings but what I remember doing was that mom had all these innovative projects that allowed us to complete our merit badges but she herself ended up doing a good deal of the work and we were her helpers let me give you two great examples one was we had to create our own campsite and uh, and not only that you had to have all the things to, you know to make sure it was secure well we didn't have the equipment and we didn't have the money to buy that but what my mother did very cleverly was that she spoke with the other mothers she got, you know, old bedspreads and you've got uh, various things to, you know, hold them up. And we created a, a wonderful full-size tent in our backyard that could host uh, all eight of us boys that comprised the troupe. And we were able to get our merit badge. Another time we were uh, tasked with having to uh, build an entire soundstage to create a script And uh, my mom and the others, they came up with a script uh, that was a fusion of a Christmas theme with, of course, the space age. Because at that time in 1965, 66 was the middle of the space race. And so here's what we did. We actually created, you know, getting wood and all kinds of electric supplies. We created our own uh, replica of mission control. So, Gilbert, it looked like your sound studio here with all kinds of toggles and switches, some of which actually switched on lights, some of which were Christmas lights or other little bulbs. And we we created these, you know, on on these uh, plywood boards, we created our own uh, replica of Mission Control. And so we were able to build things. And then that continued later because then we were asked to build a playhouse and then, uh, you know, other such things where, you know, you were using your hands, you had to think about using alternative materials it, to kind of echo what Mike was saying. You couldn't just call somebody as you do now, and they'll stage it for you. They'll create this this uh, you know this wonderful environment for you. You had to do that yourselves. And and maybe another time, I think we created. You're going to love this, guys. We had to create our own circus. So that meant that we all brought our pets. Some of us had dogs and cats. Yours truly had a dog and cats, and I had turtles. And some of the other kids brought their dogs. And so we created literally a three-ring circus we had to build with boxes you know, a set of um, seating, you know, for the, you know, for the audience. And we had to create the three rings. So that's what we did, building things on our own. And I really enjoyed doing that. I think the other thing, too, that I appreciated that I continue to this day was uh, developing an appreciation for gardening. Uh, Of course, you know, we do have a, a gardener that comes in and does work for us, but we ourselves enjoy doing a lot of gardening. Uh, and that's something I remember doing uh, with my parents as well, sort of following what, what Mike was saying at that era, you know, doing things yourselves at home to beautify it, so to speak.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's neat, uh, George, on the, um, on the on three-ring circus with all the, the different pets. That must have been fun.
2: <laughs> oh, it was. And then if you could had your pet do tricks, wow.
1: <laughs> when I was a, a kid, the thing I wanted to do most of all was I wanted to paint. And my my dad would not let me paint. He would always say, you're going to make a mess if I give you the paintbrush. And so I'd watch him paint. <laughs> so one time, my next-door neighbors, uh, one of their sons was building a uh, a trailer in the back, kind of a little trailer to haul trash and haul mm-hmm. wood and concrete and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was, uh, at that time, probably in his, I guess, maybe his late 40s or whatever. And I used to hang out by the fence and talk to him. And he would talk to me. He was very, very nice and while he was building and came the time for him to paint the outside of this trailer and uh, his name was Don, Don Green and I said, Don I said, you know, that looks really neat I said, "You you know, my dad won't let me paint anything, he won't let me touch a paintbrush, so he kept painting, and then a little while later, he said, "Gilbert, he said, here, he hands me the paintbrush, I want you to finish painting this corner of this trailer. I go, really? I thought that was the neatest thing in How the world. wonderful. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> and he had a lot of trust and confidence he, in you. Yes, he did more than my dad did. Isn't
2: that something? Sometimes, <laughs> you know, parents sometimes think the worst of their kids. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, what
2: a great memory. Yeah, but
1: that was fun. But it was always neat to be, even if not specifically helping be hanging around while something was going on. You know, like Mike was mentioned when his dad was tuning up the car, my dad used to tune up our old pickup truck. He'd be outside sometimes building something. And even if I wasn't directly helping, I was there watching. And also in watching, we learned.
2: It's you a know, rite of passage, it is, yeah. and it's a way I mean, of transitioning, um, you know, from childhood into adulthood. Yeah, that you're able to help out and to be part of something. I think that's wonderful because I, I remember that you know you could then talk about it and say, "Hey, look what we built! Right, look what, exactly. Look, look what we did! Yeah." And I think to be able to do that was really quite amazing.
0: Well, you're you're just a sense of wonderment when you're when you're sure. in your younger years and you're pre-adolescent or, or early adolescence and you're wondering how things work and the only way you learn is by watching people do things uh, how many times how many hours have you just been in a trance watching the the street department black top part of your, your street sure or, or sure. the jackhammer guys jo- chopping up some of the sidewalk or, or removing a tree and mm-hmm. as a little kid it's well you know I'm, I'm going to do that someday I, I'm going to Look at that. That must be the best job there is in the world, the guy that's on the roller, the cement roller coming down the street squashing <laughs> squashing the blacktop. Yep. You
2: know, I think oh. another thing, too, you guys just mentioned something. Talk about learning to do things. I remember learning how to cook because I love mm-hmm. cooking. But my mother, when I was very young, and, and Mom, by the way, is still with us, uh, yeah, ninety-three. But what was interesting was my mom had to have some major, shall we say, life-threatening operations when I was very young in elementary school, Gilbert. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, how she. Took me aside and says, you know, there's a possibility that mom may not be coming home. She Mm -hmm. says, so I want to show you how to prepare meals. And I remember the next several weeks, uh, Mike and Gilbert, learning how to cook, learning my way around the kitchen, how to make stuff. You know, whether it was scrambled eggs or pancakes or, you know, cooking a hamburger, you know, all these things. And this is, by the way, well before the modern technology Mm -hmm. of of microwave prepared foods and all that. You had to build from scratch. Uh, in many cases, and mom showed me the techniques and how to properly cut vegetables, so that you ended up cutting the vegetables and not yourself. Mm-hmm. But I-, I thought it was kind of neat to be able to learn how to help prepare meals. And then when my dad would come home, you know, from his uh, long day at work, I'd say, you know, hey, I helped mom prepare the dinner.
1: That's a neat memory, George. And I think the thing that I take away from all of this is in watching whether it was our moms or dads or. Uncles, neighbors, whatnot. We learned, you know, it was a rite of passage. We learned by watching them and by what they taught us. Is that it? That's it for this segment. Is this
0: segment done? Yes. I've been I've been thinking of those memories, and you go back and and the interesting part about this show, not only as a co-producer, but as a listener, is you guys are bringing back these <laughs> these intriguing <laughs> thoughts and, and memories. Are we wrapping up? No, we're going to We're a going, retro we're wrapping, up the, we're wrapping up this segment, segment. folks. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about my, my career, my lost career as a blacktop roller. <laughs> uh, I, maybe there's still time left. No, they're not hiring guys my age. We're going to go to a retro Don't go away, folks. Uh, it, we've really enjoyed bringing this part to you. And there's a, another part to come. So don't go away. Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight retro coming up. There's just one show. Yeah, yeah. Out You're out of You're out of being.
1: Like it, like when it There's only
0: one that when you're out of Schlitz You're out of beer in the break.
1: Night, beer, Schlitz That's a neat commercial for Schlitz beer Catchy uh, tune there Ladies and gentlemen, hope you enjoyed that Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside Here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network I'm Gilbert Smitty-Smith with Mike Bragg And George Helilacos, and we're going to do the last segment of our show for today, and that is, we're going to remember some of our favorite teachers, and in my case, uh, administrators too, from the uh, early days when we were in school. We all have teachers that we remember that perhaps were a little bit more influential to us than others. That those that have stayed with us, and those that have uh, uh, that really helped to shape us in some way, or just really that we've not forgotten that have were very important to us. And we're going to talk of kind of banter back and forth about some of our favorite teachers. I'm going to turn it over to George, because he's got some fun memories of that, and Mike and I will join in. But uh, there were some teachers that made a big difference in our lives, George.
2: Absolutely, gentlemen. And uh, as you know, yours truly is a finance instructor at the University of California at San Diego. And this is something that I share with my students about the teachers that had a tremendous influence upon me. And that influence is now carried on through me as I pass on the things that I learned from them uh, to my students that I have from all over the world. And I selected four teachers, one from elementary school, the others from junior high and high school, and then college and graduate school. So my first teacher that I pay tribute to from elementary school is Mr. Seymour Novens. Mr. Novens was a native of New York City. He was my fifth grade teacher. And with yours truly, he inspired a lifetime love of reading. He had encouraged me uh, to uh, read longer novels and uh, pursue the classics. Uh, and uh, I did that, uh, particularly after the restrictions had been lifted um, on my use of my eyes at that time. And Mr. Novens, I give a great deal of credit to, to encouraging and inspiring that love of reading. Junior high school is an interesting one. Mrs. Lynn Gordon. She was my science teacher in both 8th uh, grade and ninth grade. And not only did I learn the basics of science, but she, Mrs. Gordon taught us uh, about... Uh, study techniques and research uh, methods that I carried forward uh, into high school and into graduate school and yes, even into the workplace. And I'm pleased to say that I maintained a lifetime friendship with Mrs. Gordon because uh, you know she has maintained a residence here in San Diego and believe it or not, she helped Sharon and I uh, move and transition to this uh, wonderful city that we now live in for nearly 10 years and she was the one, by the way, that encouraged me to apply and successfully uh, end up teaching at the University of California. So thank you, Mrs. Gordon. My third teacher, Mr. Victor Ancelone in high school uh, for both 10th and 11th grade, he was the one that uh, really helped me break through in understanding both the theoretical and practical aspects of mathematics. This had a lifetime effect on me because I later majored in quantitative business analysis and operations research in college. Something that I use now in my instruction and also in the workplace as well. So, Mr. Anselone helped me to, uh, shall we say, demystify that uh, oft difficult subject of math. Finally, I want to pay tribute to Dr. Chapman Finley III, who was the chairman of the finance department at the University of Southern California Graduate School of Business. I was not only in Dr. Fenley's corporate financial theory course as a master's degree candidate, but then I was his graduate assistant, and I also formed a lifetime friendship there as well. Dr. Fenley taught me about the importance of understanding uh, behavioral finance, game theory, if you will. And uh, he, like Mrs. Gordon, continued the friendship long after graduation and actually served as a reference for me uh, as I advanced in my career of finance and investment banking, and then later segueing into university instruction. So I feel very privileged and blessed that uh, God placed such wonderful teachers who inspired me, who encouraged me, who helped me to be the best that I could be and taught me that maybe I wasn't going to be the best Necessarily, but I could always be at my personal best, and so I give thanks to them uh, for giving uh, themselves to me that I can now do the same for my students. Well,
1: that's a wonderful tribute, George. It's very, very moving to hear that. I, you think we all have teachers that we remember back from our school years, whether they be from elementary or junior high or uh, or high school. I remember uh, actually not. Uh, Particularly, a, a teacher, but an administrator. When I was in uh, in elementary school, Mr. Ed Kane, he was the principal of the school, Emerson School here in San Diego, California, Emerson Elementary School, and Mr. Kane was just one of the nicest people that I ever. I ever met, he was uh, very interested in hearing what you had to say. He would, you know, not one of those people that would t- try to brush you off because you were a kid and didn't know what you were saying. He's very interested in what I had to say. And I remember one time, very interesting thing that happened. We were, at that time, in the old building at the school that had been built back in the teens. And this was during the time when they were doing reconstruction of a lot of the buildings. In, here in Southern California, it's earthquake country, so a lot of the, uh, the nice old buildings that used to exist are no Longer with us, and I think the first uh, first or second year that I was there, the building was still there. And for some reason, one time, I went down into the basement of this building with with Mr. Kane. We were doing something, and I remember that even at that time, as a kid, still very aware of history and all that, up on a shelf in this room in the basement were a bunch of pictures that were just stacked. And the picture on the very top was a picture of Woodrow Wilson. Mm. Those were the original presidential pictures that hung in that school at that time. Wow. Which is amazing. So I, I told Mr. Kane, I said, Look at that, that's Woodrow Wilson. He's yeah. And I said, That that's really neat, whatever. Well sometime thereafter he called me into his office and he had that he had that picture of Woodrow Wilson and he gave it to me
2: what a memory
1: yeah wow and, and he, he said I saw this he said and you know we're, we're going to clear out the building because it's going to be torn down so he, he says I want you to have this
2: picture so it was really neat what a, a really great ne- memory that is yeah and the, how precious that must be
1: yeah yeah. I still have the picture it's stored over in another location but I still have that picture fantastic when I was in junior high school there the other principal that was there was uh, Mr. Laracy Martin Laracy who was who I used to go into his office in the morning and talk to him about uh, all kinds of old stuff. And he was really neat. He was into aviation. Also, George, you would have gotten Sounds like along my kind with of guy. him. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was really neat. You to talk to him about all kinds of historical things. And, and uh, he also was, what I find about both of these gentlemen uh, was that they would listen. They would take the time to listen to whatever mm-hmm. you were particularly interested in in that more uh, mm-hmm. moment. And as a kid, of course, your, your interests kind of vary even within a, a given genre, you know, you you tend to uh, focus on one thing, and then you look at something else, and Mr. Laracy was that way. He would always listen to what I was talking about, or if I had questions about something. George, remember that he and I used to talk about Charles Lindbergh quite a bit. He had a picture of Charles Lindbergh in his office. that, that Lindy. That, that memory just came to mind, and I think, I forget, wow. I don't can't remember why he had the picture, but uh, remember we used to talk about Lindbergh. And, uh, How exciting it, for you. It was. It was really, really Living neat. history. Mm-hmm. Living history. And the third uh, teacher was my 10th grade electronics teacher, Mr. Frank Romeo, who is still with us. I had the, the privilege of seeing him about three and a half years ago, something like that. Still lives in the area. And he was really wonderful because, of course, I was interested in old radios and electronics and technology of that time period. And I remember that he and I would talk about that, and he would be very supportive of my uh, buying parts, tubes, and things from the stock room that they had there. And even after uh, that uh, class was over, that the following year, maybe even in my senior years, I recall, I was trying to work on a radio, and I had it, there was a problem that I couldn't solve. So I took the, the schematic, the wiring diagram to him, and I said, Mr. Romeo, here's what I'm working on, and here's the problem. And he says, well, are you sure you're not shorting this line out right here? And I said, well, maybe that's what it is. And I said, well, he said, go home and try that. Lift this connection and see what happens. Went home, lifted the connection, the radio started playing.
2: Wow. <laughs> what
1: a teachable moment. Yes, yes, it was. It really, really was. So, uh, uh, and in fact, when I went to see him about three years ago, he gave me some books and, and an old radio he had sitting there. He says, oh. here, he says, he said, I always remember you were interested in these radios. So, I'm glad oh, you
2: maintained I, that lifetime I, connection I like, did. I, like
1: yours truly did. I really did, yeah. Yes. Mike, how about you? Any uh, teachers that stand out from that time period uh,
0: for you? There are probably several teachers, but the ones... The most important ones in, in your mind are the ones who made a difference. You mentioned that your association with the teacher that collected things and yeah. had the old stuff. Of course. Oh yes. Uh-huh. And you wonder if maybe that's what if that's what inspired you to become a collector. And I look back at teachers that I had over the years, even from elementary school and teachers in junior high and high school that intrigued me with subjects or certain things where I'm a collector today, there's certain things I enjoy doing. I had a horticulture teacher in my high school years who actually he would come over to the house and we had a side yard that was overgrown with weeds and old lemon tree and some old rose bushes and he was Japanese and Mr. Nakatani I hope he's still around and he had the coolest 55 Chevy Nomad station wagon mm-hmm. and when he'd come over and we'd outline and string out the area he would ride drive me home because it was after school. And uh, he looked at this area and the ideas in his head, and he, of course, a a horticulture teacher. But the interesting part, his parents were Nisei, mm-hmm. and they were interned in Santa Anita mm. during the war. And we started talking, we became friends, and I, I was probably 15, 14, 15 years old, and he was definitely probably in his 30s. But to talk about how things were, even in Los Angeles, Mm-hmm. in the early days during World War II or prior to World War II and some of the things that the Japanese-Americans had to go through. So not only was he a, a horticulture teacher, but he was also uh, got me interested in, in Los Angeles early LA history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons my love for history to this day is so vibrant and robust are the teachers who told, I used to always be curious about the old days, how things were in the old days. And how people used to do things, and, and teachers. And I, I had a teacher also, an electronic shop teacher, Mr. Stark. And he was a, uh, and he, nobody knew this, but I found out later he was a decorated Navy veteran. Mm-hmm. And he was, um, interesting enough, he was decorated because he was out on a battleship one night in the dark seas of the South Pacific, and this was toward the end of World War II. Mm. and blacked out, lights out, and it was hot underneath in the sleeping, the birthing areas, and he and a friend were up in the gun turrets just trying to get some air, and they were talking, I think they are talking about their girlfriends. And here comes a kamikaze pilot out of nowhere, no warning. They were supposed to be in a safe area, and he and his friend saved the ship and all the sailors on the ship Happenstance that they were up in this turret, just trying to get a breath of fresh air. The stories. Now, I grew up in a time, and I went to school in a time where most of my teachers, most of my male teachers, were veterans.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They were. I had teachers that were actually veterans of World War One. Wow! They were much older. Yeah. I had an mm-hmm. art teacher and a drafting teacher, Mr. Hines, who was actually served in World War One. Amazing! And yeah. Just the fact of. Finding out that here's a kid who's curious and he's not just here to try and get through school or mm-hmm. here to learn how to draw, but he, he's inquisitive and 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 Mike Bragg's dad was a veteran and his uncles were veterans, his grandfather was a veteran, and I would sit after class and well tell me what it was like to be mm-hmm. in the Army Air Corps and to fly mm-hmm. missions, fly missions over Germany in the Eighth Air Force, and they took a liking to that and an interest and just hear those stories, those those verbal stories of history from teachers, because mm-hmm. I wasn't a very good student. And in high school, I had my own company, and I worked f- most of the time, so I was on work furlough or work passes. So I really didn't have the the formal classrooms that most kids in high school had. I was usually out of school by eleven thirty or 12, and off doing my work on work experience, but... I'll never forget the teachers all the way down the line, the teachers I learned something from, not necessarily associated with the class I was in, but about their lives and their experiences. Uh, I had a teacher who's, whose wife was murdered, oh, and my. he didn't talk about it too much, but we all knew, and it was something that happened in the 50s. <laughs> and uh, just knowing that, how would this man feel? His, his wife was taken away from him. And, and years and years, and those are times and memories that you don't forget there were certain nuances certain things about certain teachers that you will always remember i had a teacher in the 6th grade and uh he was in the army he taught us boys how to march at lunch hour he had marching classes if you wanted to take them how to march in formation you don't forget that kind of stuff yeah but you know we're going to wrap this story and these uh these memories up today folks we were at the hour mark we do thank you for listening to us here at Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. There are many ways to get a hold of us, but the best way is through Facebook. We do have an email, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com. But please join us as a friend on our Facebook page, Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on Facebook. Uh, all of our shows, well over uh, 200 shows now, Smitty, yes. are available at I- Apple iTunes or Mixcloud or even just by going to our website, com, or going over to Facebook, and you'll find directions on how to get to any or all shows. We go back a number of years now. Here we are, well over 200 shows, but looking back at show one, it's it's been great. and yeah. We hope you enjoy these stories, too, and we really hope that you will share some of these stories and memories. And if, if we've rang a bell, if we've... We've hit a couple of nerve endings where we've you've thought about something you had a th- haven't thought about, and the little blue wire in your head connects with the little yellow wire because of something we've shared or discussed in a show. Please let us hear about it; it means so much to us. In the meantime, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty, and I'm George, and we'll be talking to you again very soon, right here at Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsite on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.
1: is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.